Thank you, Noah. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Anita Sharma. I'm a steering committee member of the BBA's Delivery of Legal Services section. And on behalf of the Delivery of Legal Services section, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today for this very special and important training, special considerations when representing immigrant youth part two. Um, we're so lucky to have Elizabeth Badger back with us to continue the training. Thank you all for being here. I'd also like to thank the BBA, um, including Noah and Ariana and the Delivery of Legal Services co-chair, Mia Friedman and Liz Matos for helping us to make this training possible. Please do enjoy the training, the two-part training, um, but also consider volunteering with PEAR. Um, perhaps to take a pro bono case, one of the cases that Elizabeth has been talking about, whether it's an asylum case or a stitch case or a U visa or T visa case, which is gonna go over today, your pro bono partnership will make a profound difference in the lives of one of these unaccompanied minors. Um, so I really hope that you'll consider taking a case from us. I'm honored to introduce Elizabeth. Uh, she is a senior staff member at PEAR, where she manages the Access to Justice for Immigrant Families Initiative, providing direct representation to immigrant children and families throughout Massachusetts and collaborating with community organizations that work with the same community. Elizabeth received her JD from Boston University Law School and her BA from Dartmouth College. She has worked in immigration law for nearly 20 years, focusing on representing non-citizen children, asylum seekers, victims of crimes, and persons in prolonged immigration detention. And as many of you who attended last week, um, we, where Elizabeth kind of gave an introduction of why many children might flee to the US from their home country and, um, you know, sort of building on Elizabeth's uh, tips and working with um, immigrant youth, you know, how to interview them, um, how to help draft their affidavits. And um, last time she covered the immigration form of relief, special immigrant juvenile status. She's now going to continue uh, in today, train on other forms of possible immigration relief. She's going to cover um, asylum law, uh, U visa relief and T visa relief. And you're about to learn a lot more from her on these things. So if you haven't heard um, these forms of relief before, you're very lucky to have Elizabeth guide us and um, sort of just different forms of relief that can help stabilize the status of um, immigrant youth. So Elizabeth, I, again, I thank you so much for being with us and for giving us so much of your time. And uh, again, encourage everybody to please consider taking a pro bono case at the, at the end of this training. Um, we'll definitely leave our information on how you can get in touch with uh, Pear or Elizabeth directly. Thank you. Thanks, Anita. And thanks, Noah and the BBA for hosting this. Um, so as Anita referenced last week, seems longer ago than that, but last week we um, started thinking about forms of relief for immigrant children and um, did some overview of the immigration system. Uh, certainly not a deep dive, kind of a broad strokes overview. And um, then talked in more detail about tips for interviewing children, working with children and interpreters and special immigrant juvenile status. Um, just a quick note about volunteering with PAIR. We are trying to encourage uh, listeners to 
use this as an initial, you know, tool to become interested and understand um, forms of relief for immigrant children, and then hopefully be able to work with us in the future on a volunteer case that we will provide mentorship on. And so when working with PAIR uh, representing any client, uh, including child clients, PAIR provides mentorship and samples. Um, our PAIR manual, which is a deeper dive into the immigration system as well as the asylum process. Um, talking about in more detail, you know, immigration and family court appearances, working with an interpreter, and uh, will also assist you in working with non-legal providers that uh, often intersect with our child clients. So just a, a looking again at a roadmap for today. Today, we're gonna to talk more about child-specific asylum claims. Um, our hour and a half will not be able to go through the whole asylum system. Um, so these are, again, some uh, ways to develop child-specific claims. We're gonna take a special look at particular social group, um, specifically in the family and gender or domestic violence context. And then we're going to talk about special considerations for U visas and T visas. U visas are a form of status for victims and survivors of certain crimes. And T visas are um, a similar form of status for victims of trafficking. And I think um, over the years, you know, it's taken a while to just create my own checklist of how to evaluate even a family as a whole, where I'm representing children included in that family, um, to assess whether one of these pathways might be applicable for them. And so I'm gonna kind of like think through some of those checklists, um, again, without being able to do a deeper dive into the entire U visa and T visa process. So we're gonna be, our goal here is to orient to specific issues for claims involving children. And then, I wanted to point out what I think are complementary programs that the BBA has. Uh, certainly the, the training we did last week, um, my colleague Violetta also talked about um, best practices for completing an asylum application. Um, and you see a, a list of other um, trainings here that are on the BBA website. Also say that um, MCLE, also has some of our trainings that are a deeper dive into asylum. So all those resources out, are out there accessible to you. Um, so I wanna start picking up kind of where we left off talking about procedure last week um, and we'll orient towards procedural asylum consideration. So we talked about the difference between when someone's in removal proceedings versus not that there is the immigration agency, USCIS, and there are the immigration courts, uh, EOIR. Um, and those categories are going to become relevant for how we think about um, where and how to file children's asylum claims. So the first categorization, and, and this is a repeat from last week, but bears repeating, um, is understanding who gets categorized as an undocumented child. Um, so the first, I guess, relevant definition is for all immigration purposes, which is different from state law, 
um, a child is considered someone who's under 21 and unmarried. However, with asylum, um, this accompanied, unaccompanied distinction becomes important. So uh, an unaccompanied child is somebody who's under 18, not accompanied by a parent or legal guardian. And then the reverse is true, accompanied as someone who's under 18 and with a parent or legal guardian. And that designation generally happens when uh, someone is first detected by immigration. So if someone is entering, let's say, as often happens, or seeking admission through the southern border to seek protection in the United States, and they come into contact with immigration, if they are an unaccompanied minor, per that definition, they'll be sent to what we call the Office of Refugee Resettlement and put in a immigration detention center that some folks refer to as a shelter for children, and then they'll go through a process of reunifying with an adult that is screened for, you know, biological or um, familial connection and a safe caretaker. Um, on the other hand, if a family unit is coming in together, um, so mom and kids, as is often the case, enter the United States through the border and are detected, um, those children will be designated as accompanied. Um, so that those categorizations, I would say, generally occur when someone is entering at the border, but as we'll show in some examples in a little bit later, um, they could come up at other points as well. Um, when working on children's asylum claims, um, it is super important, and, and I'm not gonna lie, it's a little bit of a lengthy memo, but this first guidelines for adjudicators on child asylum claims is a really important read. And that's partly because they're not always followed. So uh, it talks about how adjudicators need to allow trusted adults uh, into the interview. Um, they need to you know, take cues from the child, ask child appropriate questions, um, set the stage, uh, be very, uh, transparent and clear cut and explain why certain questions are being asked. And so if you know what the USCIS guidelines say for how these interviews should go, um, you'll be better armed to deal with the situation when they're not being followed or to protect your client if you feel like the asylum adjudicator is not being uh, acting in a child appropriate manner. In terms of procedural filing rules, um, there is a whole slew of them on the USCIS website that I have listed here. Um, but the most, I would say, important one or one that we're gonna note here is that when an unaccompanied child is in removal proceedings, uh, we file their asylum application with the agency. And so the default rule is that Anyone who is in immigration court, which we also call removal proceedings, we file their application with the immigration court. But when it comes to someone who is an unaccompanied child, they have this considered benefit of the process, which is supposed to be a less adversarial process before the agency, and we file their asylum claim with the agency, which we refer to as USCIS, US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, and that designation remains unless it is changed by ICE 
or the IJ. And I'll kind of, again, get into some examples here in just a sec. So going through these, because I think it, it, it bears spending a bit of time on examples. So a minor child uh, under 18, someone's designated an unaccompanied child at entry, and then they reunify with their mother. So at no point does ICE or the immigration judge, IJ, redesignate, meaning no one effectively rescinds this designation that they received, that the child received at the border. So they remain an unaccompanied child. And that's significant because they were without their parent or legal guardian at the border. Now they may have reunified with their mother in Massachusetts. They're remaining an unaccompanied child because that is what they were designated at the border, absent a redesignation. And so that means that individual can and must file their asylum application with the agency. Similarly, a minor child is designated a UC and then turns 18, regardless of who she is reunified with. So now she's over 18, even though she's turned 18, same thing happens. She remains designated an unaccompanied child, even though no um, redesignation has happened. And those, that rule that an individual remains designated an unaccompanied child in spite of reunification with a parent or legal guardian or in spite of turning 18 um, is kind of the status quo right now. But I'll flip back to the last um, slide here, or I'll try to. Um, JOP versus DHS is some pending litigation where there is, that is kind of maintaining the status quo of, of what I just explained right now, but it is worth continuing to check back about the status of that litigation um, if you don't do these cases very often before you file uh, an asylum application. The best, you know, there are circumstances out of our control, but, um, Many folks will err on the side of filing the unaccompanied child asylum claim before someone, let's say, turns 18, uh, so as to preserve their status as an unaccompanied child at the time of filing. But as I said, the status quo right now is that regardless of reunification with a parent or legal guardian or aging out, as we say, turning 18, they should remain an unaccompanied child regardless of, um, as long as there's no redesignation. On the other hand, if someone is designated an unaccompanied child, but you get to immigration court and the immigration judge says, well, I see here that so-and-so is living with his father. Is that true? I'm the judge per this case matter of Mako flipping back here again has the authority to effectively de-designate and take jurisdiction of that asylum application and say no you have to file your asylum application with me the immigration judge in the first instance rather than filing with the agency in the Boston immigration court the judges are a bit all over the map about whether they invoke that authority, it's not a mandatory authority uh, to redesignate someone. Um, so I think that is the benefit of, of working with mentors who can give you some guidance on you know, what tendencies certain judges are, uh, 
what tendencies judges have to do that or not. Another example that we sometimes see is when a minor is designated a UC at entry, but then turns 18 and may be detained by ICE. They may have, something may have happened that they have come onto the radar as being what we call an enforcement priority. Um, they're placed in adult custody. The rules here are a little unclear. Um, ICE will usually say we have, by virtue of placing a child or someone who was previously a UC into adult custody, we have automatically de-designated them uh, from being a UC. Other, uh, I think a lot of advocates will say, no, something has to be put in writing in order for that change in status to occur. Um, so that's a bit of a tricky one. And then the last situation that we sometimes see is when a child who has entered with their parents and is in removal proceedings are, you know, if something happens to the family unit. Um, I had a case recently where mother had abandoned the child and child was effectively living on their own. Now, DCF, our, our Massachusetts State Child Protective Services may come into play there. Um, so that is uh, a way to demonstrate that someone is now an unaccompanied child. Um, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, and so if that's the situation where someone's been previously designated accompanied, but they no longer are, one can file the asylum claim as an unaccompanied um, child, but uh, it's our burden of proof to show why we think that status has changed. And so a few tips on how to file these applications. There's a special instruction sheet uh, that basically cues the mailroom who's opening this at immigration that this it is what it is. It is a UC asylum application. And that instruction sheet with the link there instructs to send to Nebraska Center, not Vermont, which is where most affirmative asylum applications are sent. You want to include that instruction sheet in the mail, include proof of unaccompanied child status. Normally, um, that's what we call a face page, this page where a child is released from the Office of Re Refugee Resettlement, known as ORR, with their picture on it. They use it to get on a plane from wherever they are, usually at the southern border in a detention center to reunify with their family member here in Massachusetts. Uh, if you don't have a copy of their ORR records, the records that uh, were created when they were in um, ORR custody at the border, you can go to this link here, which will instruct you how to fill out a form and email it to get a copy of the record. So I'm gonna move on here to the asylum claims and we're gonna focus on particular social group membership for children. Um, I am going to give a little overview of asylum and social group just to get us or oriented, but then do the deeper dive into the formulations of um, the social group membership. So just, I think, setting the stage here, common reasons that children may be seeking safety in the U.S. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but we often see stories of child abuse, um, family-based retaliation by persecutors. Um, that could be gangs, that could be other actors, it could be government actors, but it doesn't have to be. Um, sexual and gender-based violence. So we're thinking um, 
again, it could be violence in the household, um, violence towards children with uh, different sexual identities and sexual orientations, or other, um, you know, a forced marriage type situation, or other domestic violence. So the goal here is kind of like think about these types of narratives and how we fit them into the asylum framework and how we fit them into the asylum framework really means like what questions we ask, how we develop the evidence. So again, just a little orientation here. The asylum standard is that we have to show that our client is unable or willing to return to or avail themselves of the protection of their country of nationality. Um, and that's because, because is like a really important word here, of persecution or fear of future persecution. And then the on account of another important word, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. And so while child asylum claims could fit into any of those five reasons, race, religion, nationality, particular social group, which I'll shorten to call PSG or political opinion, um, a lot of them really fit into this PSG category. Um, and it is, I would say, is one of the trickier categories of the five and um, to develop. And so that's where we're gonna spend some time on it today. So lots of changes in the case law um, recently in, at the beginning of 2021, which I'll explain shortly, but Family-based particular social group just kind of orient us to the case law here has for a long time been a thing, if you will, in the first circuit. So the case Geber Michael recognized that you know, family membership is a common identifiable characteristic um, that could be the basis for an asylum claim, meaning that uh, as we often see persecutors target one family member as a way to take revenge or motivate changed behavior or oppress another family member. And so that family connection becomes um, the protected ground for asylum. Aldana Ramos uh, was a First Circuit case that like reiterated that formula for that thinking in the you know, Central American context, though it's not, again, specific to Central America, but where we often see gangs or um, narco-trafficking or other criminal type actors who are targeting um, individuals based on their family membership. Um, I think Aldana Ramos, I'm not uh, wrong, I think was a Honduran case and um, the brothers or their two sons were being targeted in this case due to their relationship to their father. Um, and then you have the chaos of the last four years. So matter of LEA was a case that uh, the BIA, the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the appellate immigration court or immigration board between the immigration court and the first circuit um, agreed and said, yes, you know, Family is still a basis for a particular social group. You just, you got to like meet all the other criteria. And so not saying anything earth shattering that um, the recognition of this family as a particular social group has to be evaluated in the context of the society or country in question, the client's country of nationality. Um, what that means is like, 
if I'm saying that I'm being targeted, uh, this is an example, if I'm being targeted because of my cousin, someone is coming after my cousin and they're persecuting me because of my relationship to my cousin, I need to show that in my country of origin, people recognize my cousin as like a family member that is, um, that would harm to me would motivate oppression or change of behavior or harm to him. Um, so it has to be looked at in the country, in the country of origin in their context. And also you have to show that the connection actually existed, that the harm was on account of that PSG. And then there were two more cases. So then LEA, um, you know, I already am seeing a mistake here. That's uh, LEA three, which the site there is correct, 28 INN AG uh, 2021, earlier this year, abrogated a negative case that came out, um, I believe in 2018 or 2019, uh, kind of turning, uh, con convoluting this formula. Um, this is all just to say that LEA, the 2017 case is still uh, a good case in spite of some flip-flop in the last two years. So we wanna uh, ignore the 2018, 2019 um, case law on that from LEA 2. Okay, and then on gender and, and DV related particular social groups, um, also saw some convoluted uh, case law <laughs> over the last few years. So in 2014, uh, the uh, BIA issued what we call matter of ARCG that married women in uh, Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship is a cognizable particular social group as it's distinct, particular, and immutable. And I'll talk about those, those categories in just a second. Um, and that was like a, a big celebration because there had been years and years of litigation about whether women fleeing domestic violence um, could seek asylum on that basis and how they could accurately frame their particular social group. Um, and the way that it was arrived here and that the government, the Department of Homeland Security actually agreed uh, was a cognizable claim um, was as it's formulated here. Married, Guatemala, married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship. Um, that case was then overruled and convoluted some more. But then again, in 2021, earlier this year, those negative cases that we refer to as AB1 and AB2 were overturned. And so ARCG is still controlling law. And I'm gonna kind of get into like how all these cases play out in just a minute. I'm just kind of setting the stage here. Um, more recently, last year, the First Circuit gave us a gem of Depena Paniagua, VBAR, and talked about, um, and sort of recognized like all this struggle of like how to craft the particular social group um, that led to ARCG uh, and, and the negative ideas that were coming out of these cases that were trying to overturn ARCG, saying that like inability to leave, which was recognized by ARCG, you know, is okay. It's not necessarily circular um, to, because, to, sorry, I should back up. Like there has been some case law that says we should not define particular social groups as circular. So it can't be defined by the abuse. But 
Dependent Paniagua is, you know, worth a careful read because it gives examples and reasoning of how abuse or how inability to leave is not necessarily circular and, you know, can define the group, um, the definition of the particular social group, as well as defining the persecution. Um, one example they give, excuse me, one example they give is of someone in slavery and that condition of slavery could be both the abuse as well as um, the definition of the social group. Um, it also acknowledged that rather than trying to narrow a group even further that in some countries, depending upon the country, the context that we're looking at, simply women or women in country X or here in, in the situation, in the context of our training today, like girls or female children in country X could be enough to satisfy the test for a particular social group without limiting it even further. So again, I would just, all of these cases are worth a careful, careful read if you are working on PSGs related to gender and DV. So having set the stage with kind of that case law brief, very brief case law history, um, we wanna talk about developing the PSG claim. So the, the group, the definition of the group has to have a common immutable characteristic. And again, that could be gender. That could be family relationship. Um, that could be this condition of not unable to leave, for example. It has to be socially distinct. And this is where, you know, we have to use all of our resources, often not only our clients' narratives, but uh, the assistance of experts. But more and more, there are, um, you know, briefing and white papers and generalized country expert affidavits out there um, to help develop um, these next two uh, requirements for PSG. So socially distinct, so it's perceived and recognized as distinct by society in question. For example, um, are women in the society in question perceived as distinct? I think the First Circuit agreed that yes, they were. Um, but then the case law also says that it can't, has to be sufficiently particular. It can't be too overbroad or diffuse um, or subjective. One example of, of what has been considered too overbroad or subjective is um, wealth. So some wealth defined uh, groups, what is considered wealthy and I think a lot of these cases ultimately come down to the evidence, but they can be read to be more broad. In a, in a given case, wealth was not shown by the evidence to be um, very clear what it meant in the country of origin um, to be wealthy. And so instead, um, often it's the Board of Immigration Appeals or an appellate court found that the definition proposed by the applicant in a given case was too diffuse. So we have to narrow it in a way that has like clearly defined boundaries. And then we wanna prove that membership or perceived membership um, exists in that group for our, our client and our applicant. And when I say perceived membership, I say that because 
um, perceived by the persecutor. It may not be that um, someone is in fact, um, possesses these immutable characteristics, but they're seen to possess them by the persecutor. Uh, and then lastly, we have to establish that the this nexus issue, which again is like where cases often rise and fall. You may have a legally cognizable social group. Your client could be a female or a member of a certain family, but we have to show that the harm or the fear of harm is happening for that reason. Excuse me. So here are a few options or ideas. And again, this is not an exhaustive list of um, possible formulations in light of the Pena Paniagua, as well as ARCG that you might try using. Again, it's going to be fact specific to your case to articulate a viable PSG. So simply again, females or girls of a certain country, um, or again, those who are unable to leave their family or domestic household. And that unable to leave in the context of children. So we're picking up on this idea um, that abuse may be inflicted because of someone's inability to leave in given their social environment. We're applying that to children here. So although in ARCG it was talking about women in a domestic adult partnership, it can easily be applied to a child who is the victim of domestic violence within their household. Again, like thinking about the, the lack of child protective services or options for safety or the uh, approach by law enforcement to domestic violence would all create circumstances in a given society uh, that would make someone in, unable to leave their family or domestic household. Again, even if we're talking about young children, um, we often see girls uh, forced into or um, non-consensually in partnerships that were condoned by their families or condoned by society in some way um, that is causing persecution. There is definitely, a, 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 as well, sort of a subcategory of that, I guess, would be that uh, women or girls forced into relationships with gang members. There's definitely a lot of sexual violence um, prevalent in countries plagued with gang violence. And so investigating um, whether a young person has been in that type of relationship, has been threatened with that type of relationship um, might be another avenue. This one, I the last one I've had um, less success with, but to be fair, I have not tried it very much post um, Depend Upon Niagua. Uh, is girls without male protection. And again, I think it all it all comes down to you know, what the facts show in your case. So there are definitely narratives of clients that I've had where um, they uh, an individual female felt um, that she was uh, you know subject to predators because she lived alone or only lived alone with uh, another female household member. and in the context of a very, like machista society, again, and without opportunities for protection for young women in her situation, um, that could be seen as a viable particular social group. Uh, 
Um, thinking about building your record, I've kind of like given a few examples here, but you, you really want to corroborate all the legal elements. Um, we even see a lot of immigration judge decisions where everything is kind of smooshed into one consideration or legal evaluation, but you really want to go through each legal element. So what is considered immutable? What is considered socially distinct? What's considered particular making up your particular social group definition? How is that um, the cause or the causal link to the persecution? Um, you know, and I think once you've actually briefed all those arguments, it, it, it helps when you're briefing to realize where your holes are in your evidence and you may need to go back to your factual record and develop more things or um, seek out an expert, for example, or um, I should mention a resource here. The Center for Gender and Refugee Studies has a great resource where you can like register a case online with them uh, and receive a bunch of resources that could help with building your record as well. Um, Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Oops, I think I missed one here. Let's see. There we go. So thinking about the context, um, in the affidavit, you know, it's not just the basic story um, and it's not gonna be just the story that your client voluntarily tells you either. You really have to dig. So you're gonna wanna try to get, and these are just, again, a non-exhaustive list, anecdotes of gender norms. And then again, the client's not gonna have necessarily considered something as like a gender norm in their country. So you have to think about how you're framing their, these questions. But, um, you know, did you ever know anyone, any other children who were the victims of domestic violence or abuse in their household? What happened to them? Were they ever able to get any help? Um, why abusers would know that you're their, the child is taking their threats credibly. So um, someone an abuser or persecutor may be making threats uh, that seem from our perspective here in the United States as incredible or that they would never act upon it. But we wanna show like why in, that, in the context of that country of origin, why in that social environment, um, the abuser would believe that the threats would be taken credibly. And that could be because of gender norms or norms around family violence. Um, why would the abuser think that the applicant is out without protection? We've talked about like lack of services, lack of protective mechanisms in lots of countries that you're able to document. Um, or I mentioned earlier anecdotes of how someone is considered a family member. If it's not a nuclear family member, for instance, it's not my brother, sister, mother, father, um, how might in that country of origin, in that culture, a uh, more distant family member be considered an immediate family member where it could be a causal um, element of the persecution. Think about other supporting evidence. So um, I think there's certain angles to take to these cases or ways to frame the cases then like help you look for evidence. So thinking about domestic violence and gender oppression as an epidemic um, and how it's reinforced in society, not 
you know, particular to the client, you can probably like when you're thinking about the case in that way, find other evidence to support your claim. Um, finding support for how gender related violence is systemically unprotected by the government. There may be laws for protection that the government has passed, but is there any evidence you can show that um, they're not meaningfully implemented? How elements of the PSG could, for example, put girls at risk um, or prevalence of family-based retaliation tactics by a persecutor. I think there's a lot out there right now, for instance, saying that um, gang members uh, or other like narco-trafficking groups, um, international criminal groups, retaliate uh, against people who are viewed as opposition to them by persecuting families at large as a whole. Um, one of the, a good resource that comes to mind that's worth mentioning is the um, UNHCR guidelines on asylum claims from, um, I think there is one for all of the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And they go into um, the prevalence of certain practices that can like, again, support your PSG argument. I've said this before, but it bears repeating here. You really have to focus on the nexus. You may have a great, very clear, or not so clear, but under the law, good PSG argument. But if you can't show that that's the, um, that there's a connection, that there's a cause for the harm, the persecution, it's not going to be a successful claim. Um, and so, especially when you're dealing with countries where there is a lot of violence, you have to show that the PSG is the reason, or at least a reason for the harm. And it wasn't just part of the generalized violence that's happening in that country. And so you really wanna like keep working with the client to say, okay, if this is our definition or one of our definitions of a PSG, who else is in that group? And are they also being harmed or are they not? Or can we explain away the existence of individuals? Are there reasons why some certain individuals are, are not harmed? Or do we need to like reframe how we are um, labeling our PSG? With child asylum claims, it's really important to talk about in, um, inability to safely relocate. I have found that this is something that the asylum office especially tends to focus on. Um, so the USCIS, the agency, um, and they tend to focus it on, especially like once someone is old enough. So you have a child who has fled domestic violence, gender related violence, family based violence. Um, but part of that was their inability to leave was connected to their age and lack of self-sufficiency. Now, perhaps they're older. Um, could they live on their own? Could they um, you know, support themselves? Is it reasonable for, to, to believe that they could um, exit the household where that abuse was happening? Um, or do you need to show um, that in fact they can't, or in fact, other persecution could happen to them, or in fact, their persecutors would still target them, even if they were living elsewhere, or that they, they simply cannot leave that household. Um, we've talked about showing lack of protection mechanisms in the country. So you have 
lack of child protective services, lack of adequate police protection, lack of governmental will to um, address these systemic forms of violence. And then again, you wanna think about, okay, so who else are in these groups? Um, who else is similarly situated and what's happening to those people who still remain in the country of origin? And this again is, you know, more general, um, not specific to the types of claims we're talking about here, but um, there is a decent body of case law on needing to exhaust PSG formulations. And although it at times feels a bit ridiculous, in essence, that means late naming several potential PSG formulations in your presentation of the case in your briefing um, in order to make sure that they are exhausted. Um, the general rule of thumb is that if they were not presented to the IJ, um, they will not be considered on appeal. And I think the BIA has been fairly strict about this at not considering even like slight variations of what was presented, um, you know, absent like significant intervening case law. Um, okay, so I'm gonna pause here. <laughs> now we're gonna really change, um, shift our, our focus to UNT visas with child victims. And again, I, I apologize for being like kind of a little erratic, but I think these, these types of claims often come up in the same clients um, that we are evaluating like the, the type of PSG claims that we just looked at. That's not because um, that one claim necessarily is related to the other, it's just the, the client community and the client population, um, these same um, they may be eligible for multiple forms of relief and it's our job as advocates to you know, pursue all the viable forms of relief in my opinion and, and set our clients up for success. So briefly, like, without going into um, a very uh, deep dive of all of the elements of UNT visas, just to frame what, the, what they are and what the goal is, they are for victims uh, on the U visa side of undocumented, uh, I'm sorry, of certain um, numerated crimes, which we'll get to in a sec, and then trafficking for T visas. And it's to encourage undocumented victims to report victimization to law enforcement without fear of removal, you know, recognizing that undocumented victims are um, have a greater likelihood of victimization than documented victims for fear of that interaction and because of perpetrators' knowledge of fear of their interaction with law enforcement, and also to like further their humanitarian interests by protecting victims. Um, so just like big overview here of UNT visas, but there are some, there are many differences, but the, the similarities are that they offer four years of non-immigrant status um, that comes with employment authorization. There is the possibility of um, derivative status for family members. And I think that is where we can talk about um, some special considerations for children, if you're representing the child individually or a family unit. Um, after three years of that non-immigrant status, someone can apply for lawful permanent residency. There are a greater array of inadmissibility waivers, meaning 
um, for instance, someone who has a prior order of deportation can still pursue UNT visas in spite of um, that order of deportation and public benefits uh, may accrue if granted one of the forms of relief. So just to orient us here, U visas are again for victims of statutorily listed crimes, which I'll mention in just a sec. The goal here is that they are helpful to criminal investigation or prosecution. So there is like a reporting requirement. Um, the victim, or as we'll talk about with children, often the victim's family has to have reported a crime to an agency that has authority to investigate or prosecute a crime. Um, I think I'll mention it, maybe the best places to mention it here, that list of potential agencies includes child protective services. So it may be the case that victims are, it is often the case, that victims are afraid of working with traditional law enforcement, but um, where the focus is like simply on their kids and the well-being of their kids, and it doesn't necessarily um, entail involvement in the court system or with police, victims may be more apt to disclose victimization to a child protective services agent. Um, at least we find that to be true fairly often. And so DCF here in Massachusetts is what we call a, um, a certifier. They can um, certify that somebody has reported a crime to them um, because they have the authority to investigate it um, in relation to the best interest of the child, even if they are not a prosecutorial body themselves. Um, with U visas, you also have to show physical and mental abuse um, in all mention this now, but explain more later. It could be either in the U visa category, at least to a victim or indirect victim. Um, and law, as I mentioned with the DCF example, law enforcement has to certify, has to sign a form that someone has been helpful. So here's our list. I won't go through all of them, but here's our list of um, crimes that count for qualifiable crimes for the U visa. They're listed in the statute. Um, the most common ones is probably not surprising that we see are um, gender and sexual violence-based crimes. So um, domestic violence, sexual abuse, uh, rape, um, things of that ilk. A certifiable crime, a qualifying crime could also constitute attempt conspiracy solicitation for any of the above crimes. So here's where I think we get into the considerations when you're representing children. So it may be that, um, well, let me, let me go through this slide first and then I'll give examples. So the applicant has to be a victim, but the question is like, what exactly does that mean? So there are direct victims, um, direct and proximate harm. So like someone was the victim of domestic violence in the United States and they report it to law enforcement, they're the victim. Um, there are, there, there is a, I guess, a, a category for bystanders who suffer unusually direct injury um, the most common examples of that category are um, people who witness 
an extremely violent crime, a murder, a shooting. Um, but you might be able to argue, you know, a child witnessing a very extreme domestic violence incident. Um, we certainly know that that causes uh, direct injury to children. Um, so something to think about there. Indirect victims, um, if they have the listed familial relationship here, a spouse, a child under 21, uh, and parents and siblings, uh, siblings under 18, indirect victims may um, petition as the direct victim, if you will, or participate or petition as like the primary victim in a case. So here's, I'll just give you an example. I had a, um, uh, and I should actually, sorry, go back and say one other thing, because the UVs allows for indirect victims, an undocumented parent um, may be the indirect victim of a US citizen child who was the direct victim. And so even though the US citizen child doesn't need any status, the undocumented parent, for instance, might. So just by way of example, like I was, I had a case where um, I had a 20 year old young person who um, was undocumented and trying to figure out what, if any status I might be able to pursue for him. Remember the definition of a child is someone who's under 21. So it came to light that the 14, 15 year old US citizen child of the family had been sexually assaulted. Very tragic, but the undocumented parents had been assisting prosecution. They um, definitely had, uh, could show injury um, through, um, you know, being concerned for their child, how the injury of their child impacted them. Um, so we were able to frame the case as mom, as the primary applicant, the primary victim, as the but being the indirect victim of her US citizen daughter's harm and incorporate the um, 20 year old child as a derivative of the mother. And so I think, again, the point here is that if you can figure out what is going on with everyone in the family, you may be able to craft a, like a formulation that encompasses the most people in the family or the child that you're representing um, in a way that the child isn't necessarily the primary applicant. Um, that example brought up this next slide here where um, applicants who are 21 and over, so in the example I just gave the mother, can include spouses and children. And here we're using the immigration definition of children again as someone who's unmarried and 20, under 21. On the flip side, if someone is, if the applicant, so say we're now we're talking about like whether it's the indirect or direct victim, but it's the primary applicant is under 21, uh, we can include spouse, children, parents, and unmarried siblings. So I, for another example, I had a big family, 16-year-old um, child had been sexually assaulted. Um, there were three other undocumented children in that family, one older and two younger, as well as the parents who were undocumented. By making 
the 16 year old child, the principal victim, she, she was the principal victim, um, we were able to petition for her older sister who was not yet 18, as well as her younger si siblings who were also under 18, um, as well as her parents. Uh, and I think where family unity is really important to the stability of a child and stability and like the overcoming victimization, um, this is like a great pathway, even though sometimes it may take longer because of the backlog, there's an extreme backlog. Um, it may take longer than other forms of relief, but it is something you wanna talk about with the children and the families you're working with because it may end up, as I said, like encompassing a, the greater family unit and providing ultimately like more stability to the child. Um, let's see how we're doing on time, I think we're okay. So I'm turning now to trafficking. And so, as you can see, that was like a very broad overview of um, U visas, but trying to focus on like some child specific elements. With T visas, I'm gonna do the same thing. So here is the definition, the regulatory definition of trafficking. Um, perhaps if, you know, this is a new topic for you, it's, you know, not trafficking as, um, yeah, is often featured in the media. Uh, <laughs> the sex trafficking is simply like commercial sex by induced by force, fraud, or coercion. Um, commercial means that it was sex for value. So it could be sex for housing, sex for food. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, your typical prostitution situation, even though that might be labeled prostitution. Um, if the person is not yet, if the, the victim is not yet 18 years of age, we don't have to show force, fraud, or coercion because that is assumed with minority. Um, so again, a typical case that I've had are um, young people who are in a sex for housing situation or who have been groomed over social media um, to, uh, engage in a commercial sex act um, in exchange, you know, that was in exchange for other necessities of life. On the, the alternative, you could have what we loosely refer to as labor trafficking. So recruitment, harboring, transportation, uh, provision or obtaining of a person for labor or services through force, fraud, or coercion um, for purposes of involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. Um, it's not uncommon in, for lack of a better term, what I'll refer to as like domestic uh, traffic, domestic relationship is not a good word because they're not relationships, but sort of domestic relationship trafficking where you have just one trafficker and one victim and the victim is, again, for lack of a better term, in a household domestic situation relationship with the trafficker. Um, there is a commercial sex element to it, but there may also be some involuntary servitude happening. Um, household labor you know, could constitute involuntary servitude in that context. So something to consider, again, when you're asking questions of your client, and they're certainly, they're certainly hard questions, but um, explaining that they may be pathways to relief, um, you know, could set the stage for why you're asking them. 
Um, just kind of want to throw out there what trafficking is not. Um, I even had to explain this to a law enforcement officer earlier this year. Um, you know, the most common thing people think of trafficking is that it requires some kind of like interstate or international transportation. Now, you know, there's no transportation element um, to trafficking. It can involve folks of all ilks, adults, children, citizens, non-citizens. Um, it's worth saying that trafficking is not smuggling. So someone who is undocumented and being brought here voluntarily um, by like a coyote, a guide, what have you, um, they're paying for that smuggling or their family member is, but it's voluntary. Um, that is smuggling, it's not trafficking. Once exploitation starts, one, which it can, it's certainly, you know, it's not uncommon for smuggling to turn into trafficking. Once um, there is an involuntary element, once there is commercial sex or, you know, some kind of forced labor happening within um, that smuggling, um, that could turn into trafficking. For the T visa, um, however, the trafficking has to have to happen at least in part in the United States. So we may, and we often do have clients that have been trafficked where their smuggling has turned into trafficking en route from their country of origin to the United States. Um, but in order to constitute trafficking for purposes of a T visa, um, it needs to have occurred in the United States. And I say it's trafficking for purposes of a T visa because there are um, some other law enforcement interactions that may investigate trafficking that occurred um, en route from the country of origin um, that I'll mention a little bit later. Let's see. So looking at, again, the general requirements for the T visa, you have victim, the victim of trafficking. So what we just talked about, victim of the sex, commercial sex or um, forced labor um, is physically present in the US due to that trafficking has complied with reasonable requests um, from law enforcement. So there is a reporting element again, provided that someone is over 18. So there we're getting into like the child specific issues and that someone would suffer extreme hardship involving unusual and severe harm if removed from the United States. So I think what is often the hardest in these cases is the reporting out well, other than developing the story because they're usually very hard stories, but what can be tricky is um, the reporting element. Uh, I would say 99%, if not 100% of the cases that have come to me are, have not been reported to law enforcement when I first start working with a, a, an individual. Um, that's because somebody's fleeing their trafficker. They really are, don't want to involve them in the court system or in the legal system because that means more contact. It often also means uh, potential retaliation, either in the United States or in the country of origin. Um, what I have found helpful with children in terms of the reporting requirement is that technically it is not a requirement for victims who are under 18. That means arguably, I think there is some argument to this, but the best practice would mean that you would have to file the T visa before someone turned 18. There's meaning there's an argument that if the trafficking happened when someone was a minor, 
but then filed after they turned 18, you could argue there's no reporting requirement, but I think um, the immigration agency could still apply that requirement to your client. Um, that being said, reporting lately by immigration has been seen as sort of like a way to uh, assess credibility or you know, be an element of you know, proving your case. Um, again, there's argument about, about whether that should be a requirement. It's just become a requirement in practice. And reporting to DCF, which again, um, does not have a prosecutory um, branch to it in and of itself. It may refer to law enforcement, but that's not always gonna happen. Um, as well as what I'm gonna talk about in a second, the OTIP, the Office of Trafficking in Persons process, is are both processes that you know, certainly can lead to prosecution, but are definitely both more child-friendly reporting processes that can meet um, the, if you will, unstated reporting requirement for children who are under 18. Um, and so here is where, excuse me, I mentioned OTIP, so the U.S. Health and Human Services Office of Trafficking Persons, we call it OTIP. Um, they are an agency who is willing to or seeks to receive and investigate um, reports of trafficking of children. Um, the reporting experience, if you will, is not very burdensome. It requires sort of a credible statement, a detailed statement that can come from the advocate, can come from another provider, maybe there's a social worker or something, um, regarding the trafficking uh, and just basic information about the child, including a proof of their age. And it's submitted via a web portal. Um, there are it is one way to fulfill the, the reporting requirement for a T visa. It has to be done before a child turns 18 because it is this process, at least in this slide, is relevant only to children. Um, it, while it fulfills the requirement for the T visa, it is also a process in and of itself, meaning that if they find that someone has been a victim of trafficking, this process in and of itself will not accrue any status to your client, but it may accrue like uh, a referral to social services like DCF, social worker, um, uh, financial benefits. Um, in Massachusetts, the most common referral goes to the International Institute of New England and they help connect your client to various services that um, can you know, try to help stabilize them. When you're reporting to OTIP, what I was referencing earlier, they do not look at the definition of trafficking as requiring trafficking be in the United States. Um, so if you're just looking for some of those services and financial benefits, you can report to them and possibly, if you believe that your, chi your child client, for instance, was a victim of trafficking outside of the United States, you could report to them and receive some of those benefits if they approve your case, but it would not 
meet the reporting requirements for a T visa because if you're reporting trafficking that occurred outside the United States, the T visa still requires it to have happened in the United States. So I hope I'm being clear there's like the, of that distinction. Um, at the same time, which is where we link back to asylum cases, if the harm that you might be reporting to OTIP happened outside of the United States, the trafficking, um, it very, it very well may be related to an asylum case that the you know, child will be, has presented or will be presenting. Um, you wanna make sure that because this is another federal agency that those stories are consistent and you may want to you know, be careful about the nature of what you disclose. Um, there are certain trafficking situations that could be viewed as criminalizing um, a young person. Um, be careful about what you disclose to OTIP, because again, it is going to be compared with, given that it is another fe federal agency, if you're also filing, let's say, an asylum claim or even another type of relief, a SIG, a U, a T visa claim. So I'm happy to answer more questions on that or any of this later, um, but I wanna wrap up here. Um, so again, just so, sort of similar to the U visa, but um, a little different. Derivatives for T visa applicants are also adults um, can apply for spouses and, um, I'm sorry, that's, I should say adults over 21 can apply for their spouses and children. Children can apply for parents, spouses, and unmarried uh, siblings under 18. There is no indirect victim avenue here, unlike the U visa. Um, what is broader, on the other hand, than the U visa is that a child of a derivative. So let's say the principal's grandchild, for instance, or um, the sibling's child can also be considered a derivative for um, T applicants. And which, same with the U visa, the derivative can't be the perpetrator. All right, so that is the end. It looks like we already have one question. and. I did note those two corrections in the slides that I need to make, one with the case law and one with the T visa um, principle. So I will do that and resend this to Noah um, before he distributes it. So let's see if I can see the Q&A here and feel free to continue um, putting your questions into the Q&A. Um, so can you give an example of extreme hardship? Sure, um, let's go back to that slide, if we can. Yeah, so the regulation, um, it's best if you can frame the hardship as something related to the trafficking, um, but it doesn't, you know, it can be more indirect. So there could be threats of, um, retaliation in the country of origin. So if uh, I recently did a case where, um, you know, the trafficker is aware that the victim has reported trafficking 
and whether or not law enforcement is here is involved here in the United States or not, um, just by you know knowledge of that reporting could um, induce the trafficker to try to retaliate against the victim in the country of origin. Um, given in the country of origin, there are less resources for protection. Um, it could be that the victim has uh, engaged with social services, domestic violence services, therapy, um, and those sources, those resources would not be available in the country of origin. Um, it could be that removal of the applicant's children or removal that would like, or the applicant's family members that would have to go with the applicant if he or she were deported um, would also cause them some hardship if removed. So I think it can be pretty broad and you wanna kind of explore all those angles, but also document it. So if you're talking about lack of resources, um, document how those, what absence of resources are in, in the country of origin. Let's see here, we've got another question. Is re-designation of UC status made by written finding? How is it made if done by ICE? So that's a great question. So the argument is that it should be done by written finding. Um, ICE might disagree with you. <laughs> so again, the situation where this might come up is where someone was designated a UC at entry, they turn 18 and are believed to have become an enforcement priority and are detained by ICE. Um, there may be some language in the JOP litigation where you would be able to argue that um, they are not properly in ICE custody and or they still merit being able to file their asylum application before the agency without a written finding. I have never, I've, I've made those arguments and I have never, um, successfully reach the conclusion of them. Uh, the issue is, as often comes up, so I had an 18 year old, he was detained by ICE, actually it's happened twice, I guess, and we still argue that the IJ did not have initial jurisdiction of the UC asylum application. We sent the application to USCIS, one time they accepted it, one time they didn't. It remained pending there, but while the individual was detained, removal proceedings were ongoing and ultimately post matter of MAKO, um, the immigration judge, I think from his or her perspective for the sake of efficiency, just de-designated or took initial jurisdiction of the asylum application um, so that that case could be, was forced to be adjudicated defensively in immigration court. So I think the answer is, is I would argue, yes, there has to be a written finding, but practically speaking, there's other forces at play that may force the case to sort of continue down the offense, the defensive asylum path, rather than being able to be adjudicated affirmatively by the asylum office. I'll give it a few minutes for more questions here. Apologies for my voice. I'm very crackly today.
Oh, here's another one. How is severe trafficking different from trafficking? Also a very good question. Um, so it is just, severe trafficking is just the definition. Um, so returning to the definition here, if I can move the Q&A box off. Um, so severe trafficking is just, uh, I should say, definition of severe trafficking in persons is defined by the following. So there is no like, as long as you meet this definition, you're meeting the definition of severe trafficking. Um, you don't have to like independently show that something was severe. Um, maybe while we're waiting to see if more questions pop up, I will say that um, the Massachusetts, which is a fairly recent statute definition of trafficking does not require a force fraud or coercion element. So if it is the case where you're representing somebody who has already been the victim in a state prosecution of trafficking, um, that prosecution alone will not demonstrate that you meet the federal definition of severe trafficking because the state definition doesn't require this force fraud or coercion element. So you might have to additionally show that, you will have to additionally show that um, in your petition to immigration. I'll give it another minute or two to see if people ask questions. Otherwise, I'll also fast forward to the last slide where I'll leave my contact information um, and folks should feel free to reach out. Okay, no, um, I don't know. I think if there are no other questions, we can wrap up then. Yeah, and thank you so much for the presentation. And we'll, if there's no other questions, and then with that being said, thank you all for attending. And um, you will receive the PowerPoints after Elizabeth makes a few edits, and then I will send those over to you so you have all the information as well as Elizabeth's contact information as well. And um, yeah, with that being said, thank you so much, Elizabeth, and everyone enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Bye.